This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris, London, UK. The Triumphs of Eugene Valmont by Robert Barr. Chapter 6 The Ghost with the Club Foot. Celebrated critics have written with scorn of what they call the long arm of coincidence in fiction. Coincidence is supposed to be the device of a novelist who does not possess ingenuity enough to construct a book without it. In France, our incomparable writers pay no attention to this because they are gifted with a keener insight into real life than is the case with the British. The superb Charles Dickens possibly as well known in France as he is wherever the English language is read, and who loved French soil and the French people, probably probed deeper into the intricacies of human character than any other novelist of modern times, and if you read his works, you will see that he continually makes use of coincidence. The experience that has come to me throughout my own strange and varied career convinces me that coincidence happens in real life with exceeding frequency, and this fact is especially borne in upon me when I set out to relate my conflict with the Rantremly ghost, which wrought startling changes upon the lives of two people, one an objectionable, domineering man, and the other a humble and crushed woman. Of course, there was a third person, and the consequences that came to him were the most striking of all, as you will learn if you do me the honour to read this account of the episode. So far as coincidence is concerned, there was first the arrival of the newspaper clipping, then the coming of Sophia Brooks, and when that much injured woman left my flat, I wrote down this sentence on a sheet of paper. Before the week is out... I predict that Lord Rantremley himself will call to see me. Next day, my servant brought in the card of Lord Rantremley. I must begin with the visit of Sophia Brooks, for though that comes second, yet I had paid no attention in particular to the newspaper clipping until the lady told her story. My man brought me a typewritten sheet of paper, on which were inscribed the words, Sophia Brooks, Typewriting and Translating Office, First Floor, Number 51, Beaumont Street, Strand, London, W.C. I said to my servant, Tell the lady as kindly as possible that I have no typewriting work to give out, and that, in fact, I keep a stenographer and typewriting machine on the premises. A few moments later my man returned, and said the lady wished to see me not about typewriting, but regarding a case in which she hoped to interest me. I was still in some hesitation about admitting her, for my transactions had now risen to a higher plane than when I was new to London. My expenses were naturally very heavy, and it was not possible for me, in justice to myself, to waste time in commissions from the poor, which, even if they resulted successfully, meant little money added to my banking account and often nothing at all because the client was unable to pay. As I remarked before, I possess a heart the most tender, and therefore must greatly to my grief steel myself against the enlisting of my sympathy 
which, alas, has frequently led to my financial loss. Still, sometimes the apparently poor are involved in matters of extreme importance, and England is so eccentric a country that one may find himself at fault if he closes the door too harshly. Indeed, ever since my servant, in the utmost good faith, threw downstairs the persistent and tattered beggar-man, who he learned later to his sorrow was actually his grace the Duke of Ventnor, I have always cautioned my subordinates not to judge too hastily from appearances. "'Show the lady in,' I said, and there came to me, hesitating, backward, abashed, a middle-aged woman dressed with distressing plainness, when one thinks of the charming costumes to be seen on a Parisian boulevard. Her subdued manner was that of one to whom the world had been cruel. I rose, bowed profoundly, and placed a chair at her disposal, with the air I should have used if my caller had been a royal princess. I claim no credit for this. It is of my nature. There you behold Eugène Valmont. My visitor was a woman. Voilà. Madame, I said politely, in what may I have the pleasure of serving you? The poor woman seemed for the moment confused, and was, I feared, on the verge of tears. But at last she spoke, and said, Perhaps you have read in the newspapers of the tragedy at Rantremley Castle? Uh, the name, madame, remains in my memory, associated elusively with some hint of seriousness. Will you pardon me a moment? And a vague thought that I had seen the castle mentioned either in a newspaper or a clipping from one, caused me to pick up the latest bunch which had come from my agent. I am imbued with no vanity at all. Still it is amusing to note what the newspapers say of one, and therefore I have subscribed to a clipping agency. In fact, I indulge in two subscriptions, one personal, the other calling for any pronouncement pertaining to the differences between England and France for it is my determination yet to write a book on the comparative characteristics of the two people. I hold a theory that the English people are utterly incomprehensible to the rest of humanity, and this will be duly set out in my forthcoming volume. I speedily found the clipping I was in search of. It proved to be a letter to the Times, and was headed, Proposed Destruction of Rantremley Castle. The letter went on to say that this edifice was one of the most noted examples of Norman architecture in the north of England, that Charles the Second had hidden there for some days after his disastrous defeat at Worcester. Part of the castle had been battered down by Cromwell, and later it again proved the refuge of a Stuart, when the pretender made it a temporary place of concealment. The new Lord Rantremley, it seemed, had determined to demolish this ancient stronghold, so interesting architecturally and historically, and to build with its stones a modern residence. Against this act of vandalism the writer strongly protested, and suggested that England should acquire the power which France constantly exerts in making an historical monument of an edifice so interwoven with the fortunes of the country. "'Well, madam,' I said, all this extract alludes to is the coming demolition of Rantremley Castle. Is that the tragedy of which you speak? Oh, no, she exclaimed. 
I mean the death of the eleventh Lord Rantremley about six weeks ago. For ten years Lord Rantremley lived practically alone in the castle. Servants would not remain there because the place was haunted, and well it may be, for a terrible family the Rantremleys have been, and a cruel, as I shall be able to tell you. Up to a month and a half ago, Lord Rantremley was waited on by a butler older than himself, and, if possible, more wicked. One morning, this old butler came up the stairs from the kitchen with Lord Rantremley's breakfast on a silver tray, as was his custom. His lordship always partook of breakfast in his own room. It is not known how the accident happened, as the old servant was going up the stairs instead of coming down, but the steps are very smooth and slippery and without a carpet. At any rate, he seems to have fallen from the top to the bottom, and lay there with a broken neck. Lord Rantremley, who was very deaf, seemingly did not hear the crash, and it is supposed that after ringing and ringing in vain, and doubtless working himself into a violent fit of temper, alas, too frequent an occurrence, the old nobleman got out of bed, and walked barefooted down the stair, coming at last upon the body of his ancient servant. There, the man who arrived every morning to light the fires found them, the servant dead, and Lord Rantremley helpless from an attack of paralysis. The physicians say that only his eyes seemed alive, and they were filled with a great fear, and indeed that is not to be wondered at after his wicked, wicked life. His right hand was but partially disabled, and with that he tried to scribble something which proved indecipherable. And so he died, and those who attended him at his last moments say that if ever a soul had a taste of future punishment before it left this earth, it was the soul of Lord Rantremley, as it shone through those terror-stricken eyes. Here the woman stopped, with a catch in her breath, as if the fear of that grim deathbed had communicated itself to her. I interjected calmness into an emotional situation by remarking in a commonplace tone, "'And it is the present Lord Rantremley who proposes to destroy the castle, I suppose?' "'Yes.' "'Is he the son of the late Lord?' "'No. He is a distant relative.' The branch of the family to which he belongs has been engaged in commerce, and I believe its members are very wealthy. Well, madam, no doubt this is all extremely interesting and rather gruesome. In what way are you concerned in these occurrences? Ten years ago I replied to an advertisement, there being required one who knew shorthand, who possessed a typewriting machine, and a knowledge of French, to act as secretary to a nobleman. I was at that time twenty-three years old, and for two years had been trying to earn my living in London through the typing of manuscript. But I was making a hard struggle of it, so I applied for this position and got it. There are in the library of Rantremley Castle many documents relating to the Stuart exile in France. His lordship wished these documents sorted and catalogued, as well as copies taken of each. Many of the letters were in the French language, and these I was required to translate and type. It was a sombre place of residence, but the salary was good, and I saw before me work enough to keep me busy for years. Besides this, 
the task was extremely congenial, and I became absorbed in it, being young and romantically inclined. Here I seemed to live in the midst of these wonderful intrigues of long ago. Documents passed through my hands, whose very possession at one period meant capital danger, bringing up even now visions of block, axe, and masked headsman. It seemed strange to me that so sinister a man as Lord Rantremley, who, I had heard, cared for nothing but drink and gambling, should have desired to promote this historical research, and, indeed, I soon found he felt nothing but contempt for it. However, he had undertaken it at the instance of his only son, then a young man of my own age, at Oxford University. Lord Rantremley at that time was sixty-five years old. His countenance was dark, harsh, and imperious, and his language brutal. He indulged in frightful outbursts of temper, but he paid so well for service that there was no lack of it, as there has been since the ghost appeared some years ago. He was very tall, and of commanding appearance, but had a deformity in the shape of a club foot, and walked with the halting step of those so afflicted. There were at that time servants in plenty at the castle, for although a tradition existed that the ghost of the founder of the house trod certain rooms, this ghost, it was said, never demonstrated its presence when the living representative of the family was a man with a club foot. Tradition further affirmed that if this club-footed ghost allowed its halting footsteps to be heard while the reigning lord possessed a similar deformity, the conjunction foreshadowed the passing of title and estates to a stranger. The ghost haunted the castle only when it was occupied by a descendant whose two feet were normal. It seems that the founder of the house was a club-footed man, and this disagreeable peculiarity often missed one generation, and sometimes two, while at other times both father and son had club feet, as was the case with the late Lord Rantremley and the young man at Oxford. I am not a believer in the supernatural, of course, but nevertheless it is strange that within the past few years everyone residing in the castle has heard the club-footed ghost, and now title and estates descend to a family that were utter strangers to the Rantremleys. Well, madam, this also sounds most alluring, and were my time not taken up with affairs more material than those to which you allude, I should be content to listen all day, but as it is, I spread my hands and shrugged my shoulders. The woman, with a deep sigh, said, "'I am sorry to have taken so long, but I wished you to understand the situation, and now I will come direct to the heart of the case. I worked alone in the library, as I told you, much interested in what I was doing. The chaplain, a great friend of Lord Rantremley's son, and indeed a former tutor of his, assisted me with the documents that were in Latin, and a friendship sprang up between us. He was an elderly man, and extremely unworldly. Lord Rantremley never concealed his scorn of this clergyman, but did not interfere with him because of the son. My work went on very pleasantly, up to the time that Reginald, the heir of his lordship, came down from Oxford. Then began the happiest days of a life that has been otherwise full of hardships and distress. 
Reginald was as different as possible from his father. In one respect only did he bear any resemblance to that terrible old man, and this resemblance was the deformity of a club foot, a blemish which one soon forgot when one came to know the gentle and high-minded nature of the young man. As I have said, it was at his instance that Lord Rantremley had engaged me to set in order those historical papers. Reginald became enthusiastic at the progress I had made, and thus the young nobleman, the chaplain, and myself continued our work together with ever-increasing enthusiasm. To cut short a recital, which must be trying to your patience, but which is necessary if you are to understand the situation, I may say that our companionship resulted in a proposal of marriage to me, which I, foolishly perhaps, and selfishly it may be, accepted. Reginald knew that his father would never consent, but we enlisted the sympathy of the chaplain, and he, mild, unworldly man, married us one day in the consecrated chapel of the castle. As I have told you, the house at that time contained many servants, and I think, without being sure, that the butler, whom I feared even more than Lord Rantremley himself, got some inkling of what was going forward. But, be that as it may, he and his lordship entered the chapel just as the ceremony was finished, and there followed an agonising scene. His lordship flung the ancient chaplain from his place, and when Reginald attempted to interfere, the maddened nobleman struck his son full in the face with his clenched fist, and my husband lay as one dead on the stone floor of the chapel. By this time the butler had locked the doors, and had rudely torn the vestments from the aged, half-insensible clergyman, and with these tied him hand and foot. All this took place in a very few moments, and I stood there as one paralysed, unable either to speak or scream. Not that screaming would have done me any good in that horrible place of thick walls. The butler produced a key, and unlocked a small private door at the side of the chapel, which led from the apartments of his lordship to the family pew. Then, taking my husband by feet and shoulders, Lord Rantremley and the butler carried him out, locking the door, and leaving the clergyman and me prisoners in the chapel. The reverend old gentleman took no notice of me. He seemed to be dazed, and when at last I found my voice and addressed him, he merely murmured over and over texts of scripture pertaining to the marriage service. In a short time, I heard the key turn again in the lock of the private door, and the butler entered alone. He unloosened the bands around the clergyman's knees, escorted him out, and once more locked the door behind him. A third time that terrible servant came back, grasped me roughly by the wrist, and without a word dragged me with him along a narrow passage, up a stair, and finally to the main hall, and so to my lord's private study, which adjoined his bedroom and there on a table I found my typewriting machine, brought up from the library. I have but the most confused recollection of what took place. I am not a courageous woman, and was in mortal terror both of Lord Rantremley and his attendant. His lordship was pacing up and down the room, and when I came in, used the most unseemly language to me, then ordered me to write at his dictation, swearing that if I did not do exactly as he told me, he would finish his son, as he put it. 
I sat down at the machine, and he dictated a letter to himself, demanding two thousand pounds to be paid to me, otherwise I should claim that I was the wife of his son secretly married. This, placing pen and ink before me, he compelled me to sign, and when I had done so, pleading to be allowed to see my husband, if only for a moment, I thought he was going to strike me, for he shook his fist in my face and used words which were appalling to hear. That was the last I ever saw of Lord Rantremley, my husband, the clergyman, or the butler. I was at once sent off to London with my belongings, the butler himself buying my ticket and flinging a handful of sovereigns into my lap as the train moved out. Here the woman stopped, buried her face in her hands, and began to weep. "'Have you done nothing about this for the past ten years?' She shook her head. "'What could I do?' she gasped. "'I had little money, and no friends. Who would believe my story?' Besides this, Lord Rantremley retained possession of a letter signed by myself that would convict me of attempted blackmail, while the butler would swear to anything against me. "'You have no marriage certificate, of course?' "'No.' "'What has become of the clergyman?' "'I do not know.' "'And what of Lord Rantremley's son?' "'It was announced that he had gone on a voyage to Australia for his health in a sailing ship, "'which was wrecked on the African coast, and everyone on board lost.' "'What is your own theory?' "'Oh, my husband was killed by the blow given him in the chapel.' "'Madam, that does not seem credible. "'A blow from the fist seldom kills.' but he fell backwards, and his head struck the sharp stone steps at the foot of the altar. I know my husband was dead when the butler and his father carried him out. You think the clergyman was also murdered? I'm sure of it. Both master and servant were capable of any crime or cruelty. You received no letters from the young man? No. You see, during our short friendship, we were constantly together, and there was no need of correspondence. "'Well, madam, what do you expect of me? "'I hoped you would investigate, and find perhaps where Reginald and the clergyman are buried. "'I realise that I have no proof, but in that way my strange story will be corroborated.' "'I leaned back in my chair and looked at her. "'Truth to tell, I only partially credited her story myself.' and yet I was positive she believed every word of it. Ten years brooding on a fancied injustice by a woman living alone, and doubtless often in dire poverty, had mixed together the actual and the imaginary, until now, what had possibly been an aimless flirtation on the part of the young man, unexpectedly discovered by the father, had formed itself into the tragedy which she had told me. "'Would it not be well,' I suggested, "'to lay the facts before the present, Lord Rantremley?' "'I have done so,' she answered simply. "'With what result?' "'His lordship said my story was preposterous. "'In examining the late lord's private papers, "'he discovered the letter which I typed and signed. "'He said very coldly that the fact that I had waited "'until everyone who could corroborate or deny my story was dead,' united with the improbability of the narrative itself, would very likely consign me to prison if I made public a statement so incredible. "'Well, you know, madam, 
I think his lordship is right. He offered me an annuity of fifty pounds, which I refused. In that refusal, madam, I think you are wrong. If you take my advice, you will accept the annuity. The woman rose slowly to her feet. It is not money I am after, she said, although God knows I have often been in sore need of it. But I am the Countess of Rantremley, and I wish my right to that name acknowledged. My character has been under an impalpable shadow for ten years. On several occasions mysterious hints have reached me that in some manner I left the castle under a cloud. If Lord Rantremley will destroy the letter which I was compelled to write under duress, and if he will give me written acknowledgment that there was nothing to be alleged against me during my stay in the castle, he may enjoy his money in peace for all of me. I want none of it. "'Have you asked him to do this?' "'Yes. He refuses to give up or destroy the letter, "'although I told him in what circumstances it had been written. "'But desiring to be fair, he said he would allow me a pound a week for life, "'entirely through his own generosity.' "'And this you refused?' "'Yes, I refused.' "'Madam, I regret to say that I cannot see my way to do anything "'with regard to what I admit is very unjust usage.' "'We have absolutely nothing to go upon except your unsupported word. "'Lord Rantremley was perfectly right when he said no one would credit your story. "'I could not go down to Rantremley Castle and make investigations there. "'I should have no right upon the premises at all, "'and would get into instant trouble as an interfering trespasser. "'I beg you to heed my advice and accept the annuity.' "'Sophia Brooks,' with that mild obstinacy of which I had received indications during her recital, slowly shook her head. "'You have been very kind to listen for so long,' she said, and then, with a curt, "'Good day,' turned and left the room. On the sheet of paper underneath her address I wrote this prophecy. "'Before the week is out, I predict that Lord Rantremley himself will call to see me.'" Next morning... At almost the same hour that Miss Brooks had arrived the day before, the Earl of Rantremley's card was brought in to me. His lordship proved to be an abrupt, ill-mannered, dapper businessman. Purse-proud, I should call him, as there was every reason he should be, for he had earned his own fortune. He was doubtless equally proud of his new title, which he was trying to live up to, assuming now and then a haughty, domineering attitude, and again relapsing into the keen, incisive manner of the man of affairs, shrewd financial sense, waging a constant struggle with the glamour of an ancient name. I am sure he would have shone to better advantage either as a financier or as a nobleman, but the combination was too much for him. I formed an instinctive dislike to the man, which probably would not have happened had he been wearing the title for twenty years, or had I met him as a businessman, with no thought of the aristocratic honour awaiting him. There seemed nothing in common between him and the former holder of the title. He had keen, ferrety eyes, a sharp financial nose, a thin-lipped line of mouth which indicated little of human kindness. He was short of stature, but he did not possess the club foot, which was one advantage. He seated himself before I had time to offer him a chair, and kept on his hat in my presence, which he would not have done 
if he had either been a genuine nobleman or a courteous businessman. "'I am Lord Rantremley,' he announced pompously, which announcement was quite unnecessary, because I held his card in my hand. Uh, "'Quite so, my lord. And you have come to learn whether or no I can lay the ghost in that old castle to the north which bears your name.' "'Well, I'm blessed!' cried his lordship agape. "'How could you guess that?' "'Oh, it is not a guess, but rather a choice of two objects, "'either of which might bring you to my rooms. "'I chose the first motive because I thought you might prefer "'to arrange the second problem with your solicitor, "'and he doubtless told you that Miss Sophia Brooks's claim was absurd, "'and that you were quite right in refusing to give up "'or destroy the typewritten letter she had signed ten years ago, "'and that it was weakness on your part without consulting him,' "'to offer her an annuity of fifty-two pounds a year. "'Long before this harangue was finished, "'which I uttered in an easy and nonchalant tone of voice, "'as if reciting something that everybody knew, "'his lordship stood on his feet again, "'staring at me like a man thunderstruck. "'This gave me the opportunity of exercising that politeness "'which his abrupt entrance and demeanour had forestalled. "'I rose, and bowing, said, "'I pray you to be seated, my lord.' He dropped into the chair rather than sat down in it. And now, I continued with the utmost suavity, stretching forth my hand, may I place your hat on this shelf out of the way where it will not incommode you during our discourse? Like a man in a dream, he took his hat from his head and passively handed it to me. And after placing it in safety, I resumed my chair with the comfortable feeling that his lordship and I were much nearer a plane of equality than when he entered the room. "'Now, about the ghost with the club-foot, my lord,' said I genially, "'may I take it that in the city, that sensible commercial portion of London, "'no spirits are believed in except those sold over the bars?' "'If you mean,' began his lordship, struggling to reach his dignity once more, "'if you mean to ask if there is any man fool enough to place credit in the story of a ghost, "'I answer no. I am a practical man, sir.' I now possess in the north property representing in farming lands, in shooting rights and what not, a locked-up capital of many a thousand pounds. As you seem to know everything, sir, perhaps you are aware that I propose to build a modern mansion on the estate. Yes, I saw the letter in the Times. Very well, sir. It has come to a fine pass if, in this country of law and the rights of property, a man may not do what he pleases with his own. I think, my lord, cases may be cited where the decisions of your courts have shown a man may not do what he likes with his own. Nevertheless, I am quite certain that if you level Rantremley Castle with the ground, and build a modern mansion in its place, the law will not hinder you. I should hope not, sir, I should hope not, said his lordship gruffly. Nevertheless, I am not one who wishes to ride roughshod over public opinion. I'm chairman of several companies which depend more or less on popular favour for success. I deplore unnecessary antagonism. Technically, I might assert my right to destroy this ancient stronghold tomorrow if I wished to do so, and if that right were seriously disputed, I should, of course, stand firm. But it is not seriously disputed. 
The British nation, sir, is too sensible a people to object to the removal of an antiquated structure that has long outlived its usefulness, and the erection of a mansion replete with all modern improvements would be a distinct addition to the country, sir. A few impertinent busybodies protest against the demolition of Rantremley Castle, but that is all. Ah, then you do intend to destroy it, I rejoined and it is possible that a touch of regret was manifest in my tones. Not just at present, not until this vulgar clamour has had time to subside. Nevertheless, as a businessman, I am forced to recognise that a large amount of unproductive capital is locked up in that property. And why is it locked up? Because of an absurd belief that the place is haunted. I could let it tomorrow at a good figure, if it were not for that rumour. "'But surely sensible men do not pay any attention to such a rumour. "'Sensible men may not, but sensible men are often married to silly women, and the women object. "'It is only the other day that I was in negotiation with Bates, of Bates Sturgeon and Bates, "'a very wealthy man, quite able and willing to pay the price I demanded. "'He cared nothing about the alleged ghost.' but his family absolutely refused to have anything to do with the place, and so the arrangement fell through. "'What is your theory regarding this ghost, my lord?' He answered me with some impatience. "'How can a sane man hold a theory about a ghost? I can, however, advance a theory regarding the noises heard in the castle. For years that place has been the resort of questionable characters.' "'I understand the Rantremley family is a very old one,' I commented innocently, but his lordship did not notice the innuendo. "'Yes, we are an old family,' he went on with great complacency. "'The castle, as perhaps you are aware, is a huge ramshackle place, honeycombed underneath with cellars. I dare say in the old days some of these cellars and caves were the resort of smugglers, and the receptacle of their contraband wares,' doubtless with the full knowledge of my ancestors, who, I regret to admit as a businessman, were not too particular in their respect for law. I make no doubt that the castle is now the refuge of a number of dangerous characters, who, knowing the legends of the place, frighten away fools by impersonating ghosts. You wish me to uncover their retreat, then? Precisely. Could I get accommodation in the castle itself? "'Lord bless you, no, nor within two miles of it. "'You might secure bed and board at the porter's lodge, perhaps, "'or in the village, which is three miles distant.' "'I should prefer to live in the castle night and day, "'until the mystery is solved.' Ah, oh, you are a practical man. "'That is a very sensible resolution. "'But you can persuade no one in that neighbourhood to bear you company. "'You would need to take some person down with you from London.' "'and the chances are that person will not stay long. "'Perhaps, my lord, if you used your influence, "'the chief of police in the village might allow a constable to bear me company. "'I do not mind roughing it in the least, "'but I should like someone to prepare my meals, "'and to be on hand in case of a struggle, "'should your surmise concerning the ghost prove correct.' "'I regret to inform you,' said his lordship, "'that the police in that barbarous district are as superstitious as the peasantry.' I myself told the chief constable my theory, and for six weeks he has been trying to run down the miscreants, who I am sure are making a rendezvous of the castle. 
"'Would you believe it, sir, that the constabulary, "'after a few nights' experience in the castle, "'threatened to resign in a body "'if they were placed on duty at Rantremley? "'They said they heard groans and shrieks "'and the measured beat of a club foot on the oaken floors. "'Perfectly absurd, of course, but there you are. "'Why, I cannot even get a charwoman or labourer "'to clear up the evidences of the tragedy "'which took place there six weeks ago. "'The beds are untouched,' the broken china and the silver tray lie to-day at the foot of the stairway, and everything remains just as it was when the inquest took place. Very well, my lord. The case presents many difficulties, and so speaking, as one businessman to another, you will understand that my compensation must be correspondingly great. All the assumed dignity which straightened up this man whenever I addressed him as my lord instantly fell from him when I enunciated the word compensation. His eyes narrowed, and all the native shrewdness of an adept skinflint appeared in his face. I shall do him the justice to say that he drove the very best bargain he could with me, and I, on my part, very deftly concealed from him the fact that I was so much interested in the affair that I should have gone down to Rantremley for nothing, rather than forego the privilege of ransacking Rantremley Castle." When the new earl had taken his departure, walking to the door with the haughty air of a nobleman, then bowing to me with the affability of a businessman, I left my flat, took a cab, and speedily found myself climbing the stair to the first floor of 51 Beaumont Street, Strand. As I paused at the door on which were painted the words S. Brooks, Stenography, Typewriting, Translation, I heard the rapid click-click of a machine inside. Knocking at the door, the writing ceased, and I was bidden to enter. The room was but meagrely furnished, and showed scant signs of prosperity. On a small side-table, clean but uncovered, the breakfast-dishes, washed but not yet put away, stood, and the kettle on the hob by the dying fire led me to infer that the typewriting woman was her own cook. I suspected that the awkward-looking sofa, which partly occupied one side of the room, concealed a bed. By the lone front window stood the typewriting machine on a small stand, and in front of it sat the woman who had visited me the morning before. She was now gazing at me, probably hoping I was a customer, for there was no recognition in her eyes. "'Good morning, Lady Rantremley,' was my greeting, which caused her to spring immediately to her feet with a little exclamation of surprise. "'Oh,' she said at last, "'you are Monsieur Valmont.' "'Excuse me that I am so stupid. Will you take a chair?' "'Thank you, madam. "'It is I who should ask to be excused for so unceremonious a morning call. "'I have come to ask you a question. "'Can you cook?' "'The lady looked at me with some surprise, "'mingled perhaps with so much of indignation as such a mild person could assume. "'She did not reply, but... "'glancing at the kettle, and then turning towards the breakfast-dishes on the table by the wall, "'a slow flush of colour suffused her wan cheeks. "'My lady,' I said at last, as the silence became embarrassing, "'you must pardon the impulse of a foreigner who finds himself constantly brought into conflict "'with prejudices which he fails to understand. "'You are perhaps offended at my question. "'The last person of whom I made that inquiry was the young and beautiful Madame la Comtesse de Valérie Montbrun, who enthusiastically clapped her hands with delight at the compliment, 
and replied impulsively, "'Oh, Monsieur Valmont, let me compose for you an omelette which will prove a dream.' And she did. One should not forget that Louis the Eighteenth himself cooked the truffe à la purée de Tolan that caused the Duc de Scar, who partook of the royal dish, to die of an indigestion. Cooking is a noble, yes, a regal art. I am a Frenchman, my lady, and like all my countrymen, regard the occupation of a cuisinier as infinitely superior to the manipulation of that machine, which is your profession, or the science of investigation, which is mine. Sir, she said, quite unmollified by my harangue, speaking with a lofty pride which somehow seemed much more natural than that so intermittently assumed by my recent visitor. "'Sir, have you come to offer me a situation as cook?' "'Yes, madame, at Rantremley Castle.' "'You are going there?' she demanded, almost breathlessly. "'Yes, madame. I leave on the ten o'clock train to-morrow morning.' I am commissioned by Lord Rantremley to investigate the supposed presence of the ghost in that mouldering dwelling. I am allowed to bring with me whatever assistance I require, and am assured that no one in the neighbourhood can be retained who dare sleep in the castle. You know the place very well, having lived there, so I shall be glad of your assistance if you will come. If there is any person whom you can trust, and who is not afraid of ghosts, I shall be delighted to escort you both to Rantremley Castle to-morrow. There is an old woman, she said, who comes here to clear up my room and do whatever I wish done. She is so deaf that she will hear no ghosts, and besides, monsieur, she can cook. I laughed in acknowledgment of this last sly hit at me, as the English say. That will do excellently, I replied, rising and placing a ten-pound note before her. I suggest, madam, "'that you purchase with this anything you may need. "'My man has instructions to send by passenger train "'a huge case of provisions, which should arrive there before us. "'If you could make it convenient to meet me at Euston Station "'about a quarter of an hour before the train leaves, "'we may be able to discover all you wish to know "'regarding the mystery of Rantremley Castle.' "'Sophia Brooks accepted the money without demur, and thanked me. I could see that her thin hands were trembling with excitement as she put the crackling banknote into her purse. Darkness was coming on next evening before we were installed in the grim building, which at first sight seemed more like a fortress than a residence. I had telegraphed from London to order a wagonette for us, and in this vehicle we drove to the police station, where I presented the written order from Lord Rantremley for the keys of the castle. The chief constable himself, a stolid, taciturn person, exhibited nevertheless some interest in my mission, and he was good enough to take the fourth seat in the wagonette and accompany us through the park to the castle, returning in that conveyance to the village as nightfall approached, and I could not but notice that this grave official betrayed some uneasiness to get off before dusk had completely set in. Silent as he was, I soon learned that he entirely disbelieved Lord Rantremley's theory that the castle harboured dangerous characters, yet so great was his inherent respect for the nobility that I could not induce him to dispute with any decisiveness his lordship's conjecture. It was plain to be seen, however, that the chief constable believed implicitly in the club-footed ghost. I asked him to return the next morning, 
as I should spend the night in investigation and might possibly have some questions to ask him, questions which none but the chief constable could answer. The good man promised, and left us rather hurriedly, the driver of the wagonette galloping his horse down the long sombre avenue towards the village outside the gates. I found Sophia Brooks but a doleful companion, and of very little assistance that evening. She seemed overcome by her remembrances. She had visited the library where her former work was done, doubtless the scene of her brief love episode, and she returned with red eyes and trembling chin, telling me haltingly that the great tome from which she was working ten years ago, and which had been left open on the solid library table, was still there exactly as she had placed it before being forced to abandon her work. For a decade, apparently, no one had entered that library. I could not but sympathise with the poor lady, thus revisiting, almost herself like a ghost, the haunted arena of her short happiness. But though she proved so dismal a companion, the old woman who came with her was a treasure. Having lived all her life in some semi-slum near the Strand, and having rarely experienced more than a summer's day glimpse of the country, the long journey had delighted her, and now this rambling old castle in the midst of the forest seemed to realise all the dreams which a perusal of halfpenny fiction had engendered in her imagination. She lit a fire, and cooked for us a very creditable supper, bustling about the place, singing to herself in a high key. Shortly after supper, Sophia Brooks, exhausted as much by her emotions and memories as by her long journey of that day, retired to rest. After being left to myself, I smoked some cigarettes, and finished a bottle of superb claret which stood at my elbow. A few hours before I had undoubtedly fallen in the estimation of the stolid constable, when, instead of asking him questions regarding the tragedy, I had inquired the position of the wine-cellar, and obtained possession of the key that opened its portal. The sight of bin after bin of dust-laden, cobwebbed bottles did more than anything else to reconcile me to my lonely vigil. There were some notable vintages represented in that dismal cavern. It was perhaps half-past ten or eleven o'clock when I began my investigations. I had taken the precaution to provide myself with half a dozen so-called electric torches before I left London. These give illumination for twenty or thirty hours steadily, and much longer if the flash is used only now and then. The torch is a thick tube, perhaps a foot and a half long, with a bull's-eye of glass at one end. By pressing a spring, the electric rays project like the illumination of an engine's headlight. A release of the spring causes instant darkness. I have found this invention useful, in that it concentrates the light on any particular spot desired, leaving all the surroundings in gloom, so that the mind is not distracted even unconsciously by the eye beholding more than is necessary at the moment. One pours a white light over any particular substance, as water is poured from the nozzle of a hose. The great house was almost painfully silent. I took one of these torches, and went to the foot of the grand staircase where the wicked butler had met his death. There, as his lordship had said, lay the silver tray, and nearby a silver jug, a pair of spoons, a knife and fork, and scattered all around the fragments of broken plates, cups, and saucers. With an exclamation of surprise at the stupidity of the researchers who had preceded me, 
I ran up the stair two steps at a time, turned to the right and along the corridor, until I came to the room occupied by the late Earl. The coverings of the bed lay turned down, just as they were when his lordship sprang to the floor, doubtless in spite of his deafness, having heard faintly the fatal crash at the foot of the stairs. A great oaken chest stood at the head of the bed, perhaps six inches from the wall. Leaning against this chest, at the edge of the bed, inclined a small round table, and the cover of the table had slipped from its sloping surface until it partially concealed the chest lid. I mounted on this carven box of old black oak, and directed the rays of electric light into the chasm between it and the wall. Then I laughed aloud, and was somewhat startled to hear another laugh directly behind me. I jumped down on the floor again, and swung round my torch like a searchlight on a battleship at sea. There was no human presence in that chamber except myself. Of course, after my first moment of surprise, I realised that the laugh was but an echo of my own. The old walls of the old house were like sounding-boards. The place resembled an ancient fiddle, still tremulous with the music that had been played on it. It was easy to understand how a superstitious population came to believe in its being haunted. In fact, I found by experiment that if one trod quickly along the uncovered floor of the corridor and stopped suddenly, one seemed to hear the sound of steps still going on. I now returned to the stairhead and examined the bare, polished boards with most gratifying results. Amazed at having learnt so much in such a short time, I took from my pocket the paper on which the dying nobleman had attempted to write with his half-paralysed hand. The chief constable had given the document to me, and I sat on the stairhead, spread it out on the floor, and scrutinised it. It was all but meaningless. Apparently two words, and the initial letter of a third, had been attempted. Now, however grotesque a piece of writing may be, you can sometimes decipher it by holding it at various angles, as those puzzles are solved, which remain a mystery when gazed at direct. By partially closing the eyes, you frequently catch the intent, as in those pictures where a human figure is concealed among the outlines of trees and leaves. I held the paper at arm's length, and with the electric light gleaming upon it, "'examined it at all angles, with eyes wide open and eyes half-closed. "'At last, inclining it away from me, I saw that the words were intended to mean "'The Secret.' "'The Secret, of course, was what he was trying to impart, "'but he had evidently got no further than the title of it. "'Deeply absorbed in my investigation, "'I was never more startled in my life "'than to hear in the stillness down the corridor the gasped words, "'Oh, God!' I swept round my light, and leaning against the wall in an almost fainting condition, Sophia Brooks, her eyes staring like those of a demented person, and her face white as any ghost could have been. Wrapped round her was a dressing-gown. I sprang to my feet. "'What are you doing there?' I cried. "'Oh, is that you, Monsieur Valmont? Thank God, thank God! I thought I was going insane. I saw a hand— a bodiless hand holding a white sheet of paper. The hand was far from bodiless, madame, for it belonged to me. But why are you here? It must be near midnight. It is midnight, answered the woman. 
I came here because I heard my husband call me three times distinctly, Sophia, 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 just like that. Nonsense, madam, I said, with an asperity I seldom use where the fair sex is concerned. But I began to see that this hysterical creature was going to be in the way during a research that called for coolness and calmness. I was sorry I had invited her to come. Nonsense, madam, you have been dreaming. Indeed, Monsieur Valmont, I have not. I have not even been asleep, and I heard the words quite plainly. You must not think I am either mad or superstitious. I thought she was both, and next moment she gave further evidence of it, running suddenly forward and clutching me by the arm. Listen, listen, she whispered. You hear nothing? Nonsense, I cried again almost roughly, for my patience was at an end, and I wished to go on with my inquiry, undisturbed. Hist! Hist! she whispered. Listen! holding up her finger. We both stood like statues, and suddenly I felt that curious creeping of the scalp, which shows that even the most civilised among us have not yet eliminated superstitious fear. In the tense silence I heard someone slowly coming up the stair. I heard the halting step of a lame man. In the tension of the moment I had allowed the light to go out. Now, recovering myself, I pressed the spring and waved its rays backward and forward down the stairway. The space was entirely empty, yet the hesitating footsteps approached us, up and up. I could almost have sworn on which step they last struck. At this interesting moment, Sophia Brooks uttered a piercing shriek and collapsed into my arms, sending the electric torch rattling down the steps and leaving us in impenetrable darkness. Really, I profess myself to be a gallant man, but there are situations which have a tendency to cause annoyance. I carried the limp creature cautiously down the stairs, fearing the fate of the butler, and at last got her into the dining-room where I lit a candle, which gave a light less brilliant, perhaps, but more steady than my torch. I dashed some water in her face, and brought her to her senses. Then, uncorking another bottle of wine, I bade her drink a glassful, which she did. "'What was it?' she whispered. "'Madam, I do not know. Very possibly the club-footed ghost of Rantremley. "'Do you believe in ghosts, Monsieur Valmont?' "'Last night I did not.' But at this hour I believe in only one thing, which is that it is time everyone was asleep. She rose to her feet at this, and with a tremulous little laugh apologised for her terror, but I assured her that for the moment there were two panic-stricken persons at the stairhead. Taking the candle and recovering my electric torch, which luckily was uninjured by its roll down the incline the butler had taken, I escorted the lady to the door of her room and bade her good-night, or rather, good morning. The rising sun dissipated a slight veil of mist which hung over the park, and also dissolved, as far as I was concerned, the phantoms which my imagination had conjured up at midnight. It was about half-past ten when the chief constable arrived. I flatter myself I put some life into that unimaginative man before I was done with him. What made you think that the butler was mounting the stair when he fell? "'He was going up with my lord's breakfast,' replied the chief. "'Then it did not occur to you that if such were the case, 
the silver pitcher would not have been empty, and besides the broken dishes there would have been the rolls, butter, toast, and what not, strewn about the floor? The chief constable opened his eyes. There was no one else for him to bring breakfast to, he objected. That is where you are very much mistaken. Bring me the boots the butler wore. He did not wear boots, sir. He wore a pair of cloth slippers. Do you know where they are? Yes, they're in the boot closet. Very well. Bring them out. Examine their soles, and sticking in one of them you will find a short sliver of pointed oak. The constable, looking slightly more stupefied than ever, brought the slippers, and I heard him ejaculate, "'Well, I'm blowed!' as he approached me. He handed me the slippers, soles upward, and there, as I have stated, was the fragment of oak, which I pulled out. Now, if you take this piece of oak to the top of the stair, you will see that it fits exactly a slight interstice at the edge of one of the planks. It is as well to keep one's eyes open, constable, when investigating a case like this. "'Well, I'm blowed,' he said again, as we walked up the stair together. I showed him that the sliver taken from the slipper fitted exactly the interstice I had indicated. "'Now,' said I to him, "'the butler was not going up the stairs, but was coming down. "'When he fell headlong, he must have made a fearful clatter. "'Shuffling along with his burden, his slipper was impaled by this sliver,' and the butler's hands being full, he could not save himself, but went head foremost down the stair. The startling point, however, is the fact that he was not carrying my lord's breakfast to him, or taking it away from him, but that there is someone else in the castle for whom he was caterer. Who is that person? I'm blessed if I know, said the constable, but I think you're wrong there. He may not have been carrying up the breakfast, but he was certainly taking away the tray, as is shown by the empty dishes, which you have just a moment ago pointed out. No, constable. When his lordship heard the crash and sprang impulsively from his bed, he upset the little table on which had been placed his own tray. It shot over the oaken chest at the head of the bed, and if you look between it and the wall, you will find tray, dishes, and the remnants of a breakfast. "'Well, I'm blessed!' exclaimed the chief constable once again. "'The main point of all this,' I went on calmly, "'is not the disaster to the butler, nor even the shock to his lordship, "'but the fact that the tray the serving-man carried brought food to a prisoner, "'who probably for six weeks has been without anything to eat.' "'Then,' said the constable, "'he's a dead man.' "'I find it easier,' said I, "'to believe in a living man than in a dead man's ghost. "'I think I heard his footsteps at midnight, "'and they seemed to me the footsteps of a person very nearly exhausted. "'Therefore, Constable, I have awaited your arrival with some impatience. "'The words his late lordship endeavoured to write on the paper were, "'The Secret. "'I am sure that the hieroglyphics with which he ended his effort "'stood for the letter R.' and if he finished his sentence it would have stood, THE SECRET ROOM. Now, constable, it is a matter of legend that a secret room exists in this castle. Do you know where it is? No one knows where the secret room is, or the way to enter it, except the lords of Rantremley. Well, I can assure you that the lord of Rantremley who lives in London knows nothing about it. 
I have been up and about since daylight, taking some rough measurements by stepping off distances. I surmise that the secret room is to the left of this stairway. Probably a whole suite of rooms exists, for there is certainly a stair coinciding with this one, and up that stair at midnight I heard a club-footed man ascend. Either that, or the ghost that has frightened you all, and, as I have said, I believe in the man. Here the official made the first sensible remark I had yet heard him utter. If the walls are so thick that a prisoner's cry has not been heard, how could you hear his footsteps, which make much less noise? That is very well put, constable, and when the same thing occurred to me earlier this morning, I began to study the architecture of this castle. In the first place, the entrance hall is double as wide at the big doors as it is near the stairway. If you stand with your back to the front door, you will at once wonder why the builders made this curious and unnecessary right angle, narrowing the further part of the hall to half its width. Then, as you gaze at the stair, and see that marvellous carved oak newel-post standing like a monumental column, you guess, if you have any imagination, that the stairway, like the hall, was once double as wide as it is now. We are seeing only half of it, and doubtless we shall find a similar newel post within the hidden room. You must remember, constable, that these secret apartments are no small added chambers. Twice they have sheltered a king. The constable's head bent low at the mention of royalty. I saw that his insular prejudice against me and my methods was vanishing, and that he had come to look upon me with greater respect than was shown at first. The walls need not be thick to be impenetrable to sound. Two courses of brick and a space between filled with deafening would do it. The secret apartment has been cut off from the rest of the house since the castle was built, and was not designed by the original architect. The partition was probably built in a hurry to fulfil a pressing need, and it was constructed straight up the middle of the stair, leaving the stout planks intact, each step passing thus, as it were, through the wall. Now when a man walks up the secret stairway, his footsteps reverberate until one would swear that some unseen person was treading the visible boards on the outside. "'By Jove!' said the constable, in an awed tone of voice. "'Now, officer, I have here a pickaxe and a crowbar. I propose that we settle the question at once.' but to this proposal the constable demurred. "'You surely would not break the wall without permission from his lordship in London?' "'Constable, I suspect there is no Lord Rantremley in London, and that we will find a very emaciated but genuine Lord Rantremley within ten feet of us. I need not tell you that if you are instrumental in his immediate rescue, without the exercise of too much red tape, your interests will not suffer because you the more speedily brought food and drink to the lord paramount of your district. Right you are, cried the constable with an enthusiasm for which I was not prepared. Where shall we begin? Oh, anywhere. This wall is all false from the entrance hall to some point up here. Still, as the butler was carrying the meal upstairs, I think we shall save time if we begin on the landing. I found the constable's brawn much superior to his brain. He worked like a sans-culotte on a barricade. When we had torn down part of the old oak panelling, which it seemed such a pity to mutilate with axe and crowbar, we came upon a brick wall that quickly gave way before the strength of the constable. 
Then we pulled out some substance like matting, and found a second brick wall, beyond which was a further shell of panelling. The hole we made revealed nothing but darkness inside, and, although we shouted, there was no answer. At last, when we had hewn it large enough for a man to enter, I took with me an electric torch, and stepped inside, the constable following with crowbar still in hand. I learned, as I had surmised, that we were in the upper hall of a staircase nearly as wide as the one on the outside. A flash of the light showed a door corresponding with the fireplace of the upper landing, and this door not being locked, we entered a large room, rather dimly lighted by strongly barred windows that gave into a blind courtyard, of which there had been no indication heretofore, either outside or inside the castle. Broken glass crunched under our feet, and I saw that the floor was strewn with wine-bottles, whose necks had been snapped off to save the pulling of the cork. On a mattress at the farther end of the room lay a man with grey hair and shaggy, unkempt, iron-grey beard. He seemed either asleep or dead, but when I turned my electric light full on his face, he proved to be still alive, for he rubbed his eyes languidly and groaned rather than spoke. "'Is that you at last, you beast of a butler?' "'Bring me something to eat, in heaven's name!' I shook him wider awake. He seemed to be drowsed with drink, and was fearfully emaciated. When I got him on his feet, I noticed then the deformity that characterised one of them. We assisted him through the aperture, and down into the dining-room, where he cried out continually for something to eat, but when we placed food before him he could scarcely touch it. He became more like a human being when he had drunk two glasses of wine, and I saw at once that he was not as old as his grey hair seemed to indicate. There was a haunted look in his eyes, and he watched the door as if apprehensive. "'Where is that butler?' he asked at last. "'Dead,' I replied. "'Did I kill him?' "'No, he fell down the stairway and broke his neck.' <laughs> the man laughed harshly. "'Where is my father?' "'Who is your father?' "'Lord Rantremley. "'He is dead also.' "'How came he to die?' "'He died from a stroke of paralysis on the morning the butler was killed.' "'The rescued man made no comment on this, but turned and ate a little more of his food. "'Then he said to me, "'Do you know a girl named Sophia Brooks?' "'Yes, for ten years she thought you dead.' Ten years! Good God! Do you mean to say I've been in there only ten years? Why, I'm an old man. I must be sixty at least. No, you're not much over thirty. Is Sophia? He stopped, and the haunted look came into his eyes again. No, she's all right, and she's here. Here? Somewhere in the grounds. I sent her and the servant out for a walk, and told them not to return till luncheon-time, as the constable and I had something to do, and did not wish to be interrupted. The man ran his hand through his long, tangled beard. "'I should like to be trimmed up a bit before I see Sophia,' he said. "'I can do that for you, my lord,' cried the constable. "'My lord?' echoed the man. "'Oh, yes, I understand. You are a policeman, are you not?' "'Yes, my lord, chief constable.' "'Then I shall give myself up to you. "'I killed the butler.' 
"'Oh, impossible, my lord.' "'No, it isn't. "'The beast, as I called him, was getting old, "'and one morning he forgot to close the door behind him. "'I followed him stealthily out, "'and at the head of the stair planted my foot "'in the small of his back which sent him headlong. "'There was an infernal crash. "'I did not mean to kill the brute, but merely to escape.' "'and just as I was about to run down the stairway, "'I was appalled to see my father looking like... "'looking like... "'Well, I won't attempt to say what he looked like, "'but all my old fear of him returned. "'As he strode toward me along the corridor, "'I was in such a terror "'that I jumped through the secret door and slammed it shut. "'Where is the secret door?' I asked. "'The secret door is that fireplace.' "'The whole fireplace moves inward if you push aside the carved ornament at the left-hand corner. "'Is it a dummy fireplace, then? "'No, you may build a fire in it, and the smoke will escape up the chimney. "'But I killed the butler, constable, though not intending it, I swear.' "'And now the constable shone forth like the real rough diamond he was. "'My lord will say nothing about that. "'Legally you didn't do it. "'You see—' "'There's been an inquest on the butler, and the jury brought in the verdict, "'death by accident, through stumbling from the top of the stair. "'You can't go behind a coroner's inquest, my lord.' "'Indeed,' said his lordship, with the first laugh in which he had indulged for many a year. "'I don't want to go behind anything, constable. "'I've been behind that accursed chimney too long to wish any further imprisonment.' End of chapter 6